Hi, everyone. I'm your very special speaker today. <laughs> the Tina Colon Williams. Um, good to see all of y'all here. Welcome, welcome to the Elm City Vineyard Church. Um, we'll just get into it. Last week, Josh kicked off our Advent series, which is called Expecting a Bigger Story, uh, with the message on hope. And this afternoon, I get to share a little bit with you guys about doubt and how doubt fits into the bigger story of God and God's people. So just want to acknowledge that um, I know that doubt can be a bit of a sensitive subject depending on your spiritual back background. And I personally grew up uh, in the faith with a very specific slice of the American church. Throughout my formative teenage years, I went to this really big Bible Belt evangelical church in Jacksonville, Florida, um, that in the spectrum of really chill to really intense, it was all the way on the really intense side of those things. And in my church context growing up, we were real big on certainty. Confidence in what you believe was like the foundation. It was a given if you're going to call yourself a Christian and for sure if you're going to be a Christian leader. So the mindset was sort of like once you cross a threshold of salvation in Jesus, if you are asking a lot of questions, especially the big kind, that was generally discouraged. Clarifying questions, fine. But the big questions, like especially the kind that expressed some sort of a doubt, were usually seen as the beginning of the end. Too many of those and you're well on your way to being a backslider of some sort. And so at my church growing up, the way we did Bible study, well, they weren't like open-ended reflection questions wrestling together with different possible interpretations of the biblical text. They were literally, without exception, fill-in-the-blank worksheets. You, they had like um, printed out worksheets, usually a book that you bought from one of the Christian bookstores, and it had a statement of fact with the core word in the middle left blank. And they had a Bible verse, and you look up the Bible verse, and you find the answer, and you fill in the blank. Um, and there was always only one right answer. Um, and once you get them all right and absorb those, only then can you move on to the next chapter. Now, when my church leaders back in Jacksonville found out that I was leaving Florida altogether to go to college in New Haven, they were mortified. <laughs> Multiple people would pulled my mom aside like after church on Sunday and they were like, be careful. Are you sure? Are you sure? They warned her of the dangers of letting me go to such a faraway, such a secular place. They told her that I would probably or likely even lose my faith. And I can see why. My four years in college, they actually challenged everything there was to challenge about my faith. All the way down to the very foundations. And the thing about college was that my fill-in-the-blank answers didn't work. <laughs> they weren't going to cut it. And even the Christians here asked so many darn questions. All the Bible studies, like it wasn't a fill-in-the-blank. They were like, I disagree with this. I, I don't know why it says this. Like that's, that's actually problematic. And then people would argue. And I'm like, what's happening? Um, these were, these, and they would ask me questions. They would ask me personal questions, questions I had no answers for. Um, one friend of mine in particular, she came up to, it was like a one-on-one -on -one targeted. She would ask me a lot of really good, really hard questions. She was a skeptic, sort of tiptoeing her way towards faith. Um, and she asked me stuff all the time. And she didn't just ask me stuff about like what it was that I believed. 
most of those, I had like my quick answers. I was ready with my training, you know, I was ready. Um, but she would also ask these questions about why I believed it. Why did I believe that? Where did that come from? Where is, there, is there an experience that I had that actually made that true for me? Um, and because the Bible says so was not ever a satisfactory answer for my friend. And so it was in that context, in that relationship, I was forced to truly and honestly ask myself some of these questions, a lot of them for the very first time. And it shook me up. I doubted. I doubted a lot uh, in ways that I hadn't before. And the questions kept bubbling up to the surface and they kept demanding my attention. Questions about whether Jesus was the only way to God and why. Questions about the relevance of the church for real social justice and societal change. Uh, my eyes having been opened in new ways to the depth of the unfairness of everything through some time I was spending with homeless folks, time I was spending around the world, um, in class. Questions about why Jesus had to die, whether any of it makes any sense at all. Um, questions about whether my prayers are actually being heard by an all-knowing, all-loving creator, or whether they're just floating out into nothingness. And the question sometimes had a compounding, almost snowball effect. Each time I would visit my home church during these years in college, I felt more and more disillusioned with all of it, the whole thing, wondering if any of this belief stuff was worth anything, if there's a chance that some of it might be wrong or off base. But honestly, I will say to you now that the breakdown of my belief during those years in college was the best thing that could have happened to my faith during that time. All those questions ended up digging up and unearthing something clarifying, uh, connecting me to a bigger faith story, a story that held me together and tethered me in a way that no particular church context or certain doctrine could really quite fully capture. And that story says that no matter where I stand on many questions and my doubts, it says that God is good, God loves me, and God is making all things new. And today we're going to be looking at the story of Zechariah, the father of the famous John the Baptist, uh, as told by the Gospel of Luke. And before we open up the scriptures, I would love to just pray for us and for our time together with the Word. Holy Spirit, we come this afternoon um, hoping to hear from you, hoping to meet with you, hoping for a connection point with you, the living God. So we've invited you in our songs, we've invited you in our prayers already this afternoon, but I pray one more time and just say, come Holy Spirit, come living God and dwell in this place. Would you illuminate your ancient words to us? Would you say something true? Would you stir something up in us that is real? Um, and dwell with us, be with us, meet with us this afternoon. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Our story begins in the beginning of the book of Luke. And we'll pick up in the verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division, division of Abijah? Abijah? How do you say that? Abijah? One of them. Uh, his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. 
Now I'll pause here just to point out what it says right here in the text, that these were faithful people. The kind of people who tried to do the right thing, who had integrity, who were sincere in their faith. It says they were righteous in the sight of God. Pre-Jesus, that is quite a compliment. Presumably these are the sort of people that we are supposed to emulate. We'll keep going um, in verse 8. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is objectively an extraordinary experience. Zechariah here is getting a direct angelic visitation. An actual angel of the living God shows up in the flesh and has this conversation with Zechariah. Let's just take a moment and think about how ridiculous that is. That is an astounding thing to happen. And the content of the angel's message is good news. He describes it as an answered prayer. The promise is clear. It is miraculously delivered, and it is unequivocally good news. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, right? In this moment, there are all sorts of options for how Zechariah could respond. He could fall on his face in worship. That would be appropriate, reasonable. He could weep in awe of God's mercy, say something super appreciative like, wow, thank you. <laughs> but instead, Zechariah immediately responds with clear disbelief. Zechariah asked the angel, ah, how can I be sure of this? Because I don't know if you noticed, but I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. He's basically saying, how, how can that possibly be true? Thanks for sharing. Don't know if you noticed, angel of the most high God, but we are old and old people can't have babies. And the angel responds right away with a little bit of sass. The angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news, and now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come through true at their appointed time. I love this. I love this so much. Bro, I'm Gabriel. Period. <laughs> I am an angel who brought you a message from God. Shut up. Literally. <laughs> Meanwhile... Is there more Bible? Yeah. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he took so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. 
They realized, he must have seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Now, I had heard this story before. And I'd always understood this story as an illustration of God's sort of like consequences for doubting. Like, obviously, Zechariah should have just trusted and believed, right? Like, he should have been excited when he heard of God's promise over his life, just like his awesome, faithful wife, Elizabeth, who was like, this was God. Thanks, God. Uh, but as I've grown up in my humanity and in my faith, I think I'm becoming convinced that this you shall not speak is not a reprimand at all. I don't actually think God is disappointed in Zechariah for asking how in the world this is supposed to happen in his old age. Remember, this promise from the angel is something Zechariah apparently had been praying for. And since he's an old man, he'd probably seen that specific prayer go unanswered year after year after painful year for a great many years. And when your heart is aching for something to change and it gets broken over and over and over again, belief in that happening can grow cold. This is a very normal, only human response. Say what you want about Zechariah's question, but at least it's honest. And if he didn't ask it, I think he'd be doing a version of pretending and performing for the angel. Which brings me to my first point. As always, I have three. <laughs> it's okay to ask questions. Even rude, faithless questions, like <laughs> Zechariah's questions. I mean, Zechariah basically told an angel of the Lord, yeah, right, to his face. The angel could have literally smitten him dead right there. He could have at least rescinded the promised miracle and found someone more faithful and deserving, right? Oh, never mind. You clearly don't have enough faith for this. Bye. But that's not what happened, is it? Zechariah still gets to be John the Baptist's dad. He makes it into the Bible, even into the story of the birth of the actual Messiah. I don't think this sudden mutism is God's punishment for Zechariah's lack of faith. I actually think the mutism is God's heavenly flex. Oh, you really don't think I can do this? Sit back and watch. It's certainly possible. It's possible that Zechariah was incredibly mad and frustrated the whole time he couldn't talk. It's possible. It's frustrating not to be able to talk. It's limiting. It's humiliating a little bit. But my guess is that it's even more true that he felt closer to the living God than he has ever felt before. After years of disappointment and disillusionment, in all that miraculous silence, he probably felt God slowly rebuilding his sense of anticipation and expectation. Zechariah must have felt faith walking back, waking back up deep in his bones. Oh my God, it might really be true. God is active. God is good. Something amazing is happening. Something amazing is going to happen. I personally have never had an angelic visitation. It'd be fun. Probably really scary. <laughs> But I did go through a chapter of forced silence. I've told the story at church before, but for about a nine-month period, I lost my voice because of a vocal cord injury. 
I could still talk, but I could talk low and quiet and kind of husky. And I couldn't sing at all. And those of you who know me or have interacted with me for five seconds maybe know that this is not a natural state of being for me. And quite frankly, I completely hated it. Um, went through different stages. A good chunk of time, I was assuming that this was divine punishment for squandering my voice, not using it for God's glory to the best of my ability or using it irresponsibly. I felt really sad. I felt really raw and emotional and super duper 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 weepy this whole stretch of time. But... I also felt closer to God than I've ever been. And part of that is because in my time of muteness, I was being invited to listen closely to God. And as I did so, I kept expecting God to be a little bit mean, you know, like a little disappointed or a little like, this is why you should have done differently, you know. But not once, not once did I hear a lecture from God about how all I needed was more faith to get healed and it's probably my fault. Not once did I hear God chiding me for how I did this to myself or how, you know, something, um, something mean about how I squandered my talents and that's probably why. Even before my story ended with a sudden and miraculous healing, which it did, which was awesome, God was making it clear to me that whole time, in my time of muteness, my shut up and listen chapter, it was all to show me something impossibly and beautifully good about who I am, about who God is, about this bigger story that I was in, about how he sees me. Um, God was up to something and God knew it. And God was mostly using that time to flex. When it comes to doubters like me and Zechariah, and maybe some of you in this room, I don't think God is super invested in making us feel bad for not believing better. And I think instead that God is actually most invested in showing off. And if we stay around for the ride, I truly believe that we will see something glorious. So before I switch on to point two, I have a couple of invitations for you to consider. One is just to ask yourself the question, do you have any big questions you're wrestling with right now? Big ones, you know, the scary kind about what what is true, what is not true, um, will God really, what if God doesn't, you know, the scary questions. What if you were to name them out loud? What if you were to ask them and keep asking them to God directly? I think there's an invitation to bring those straight to God. And the second sort of invitation for you is, is there any part of you that's a little bit afraid that you might lose your standing before God or miss out on God's promises for your life if you're really fully, truly honest about those doubts. Because if so, I think there's an invitation to trust that God loves you fiercely and will absolutely not disown you for not being sure. When we're real with ourselves and with others and with God about our biggest doubts, I think that God won't just answer with judgment, but with working towards impossibly beautiful good news for us. So one, it's okay to ask questions. And two, we can still obey God even in our doubt. And God can still blow our minds. We'll pick up our story in Luke 1 verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, nope, he's to be called John. 
They said to her, mm, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. First of all, I would just like to point out that this child's own mother was quite clear as to the baby's name. And the people were like, nah, <laughs> so disrespectful. Okay, I don't have to be a Bible scholar to pick up on the fact that randomly naming this kid John was not in line with societal expectations and cultural tradition in that moment, right? Clearly, everyone expected them to name him something, name him after his father or at least after someone in the family. But Zechariah the doubter does exactly what the angel tells him to do, right? His name is John. Now I think there's something for us here. Not being sure of the final outcome of something doesn't have to stop us from taking the next step of obedience forward. Um, uncertainty doesn't have to stop us from obedience. If you know deep down one thing that God is asking of you, even if you feel like you don't have anything figured out, you can still do that one thing. I think, I think that obedience unlocks things. I'm honestly, I've, I'm not sure how it all works, like, cosmologically, but I do deeply believe this to, to be true, that even when we feel like we're drowning in a sea of everything that we don't know, everything that we're not sure of, there is power when we move forward faithfully with what we do know to be true. I think of, this is corny, forgive me, I think of the song from Frozen 2, on spoiler alert, okay, Elsa gets frozen into ice, in a magical iceberg. <laughs> and her sister Anna is like devastated and feels completely paralyzed under the weight of her grief because she really loves her sister, right? And she sings this song and it goes like this. So I walk through this night, y'all know this? Um, stumbling blindly toward the light and do the next right thing. And she goes on and keeps repeating, and do the next right thing. Um, we always have the choice to do the next right thing, right? To move in obedience to what is clear. To submit to God's leadership in our lives, even when we don't have the answers to the big questions of how or why and even whether. So I'm gonna tell you a story. I think I have time to tell a story. <laughs> it's a good story, so I'm gonna tell you. Just this past week, I was, I personally, was operating from a place of high doubt, low faith, for one of my clients at work. So my day job, immigration attorney, right? I'm an attorney for immigrants who are being deported. And usually, I get to represent them in the earlier stages of that process. So there's time, right? Like a lot of the job in the, in the weaker cases, you just kick the can down the road. It's like, it's an inevitable bad ending, but it's slow, at least. Um, but there's some new rules at play for the asylum system. Some folks are being put in these fast-track expedited processes. Not great in my personal opinion, but that's a different conversation. I had one of these cases come my way over Thanksgiving. And truly against my better judgment, I decided to take this case. Long story short, my client gets a phone call last Thursday that he must report to ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, in Hartford with his suitcases packed to go on a one-way plane to Ecuador. It is done. All the process is over, like two weeks, right? His first conversation with the lawyer was me. And so as a lawyer, with little time, I did my part. I wrote a thing. 
I filed a last minute motion with this judge Monday, stayed up till foolish o'clock on Sunday night, um, called ICE multiple times as soon as it was filed to try to convince them, let's just postpone, let's postpone this removal until we have a decision on my beautiful motion. But ICE was abundantly clear, I don't care about your motion. You're not even allowed to file that kind of motion. It's not even real. Your client will be removed on Tuesday. So Monday night, reasonably, I officially gave up, right? Like, I sent a text message to Josh, he was out of town, about how sad I was that this guy was getting deported tomorrow and there's nothing I can do. And I really was sad about it. I had never even seen this person, right? Like our, phone, our appointment was over the phone. But I was really sad about it. His whole family had gotten these really scary death threats back in Ecuador and for various reasons I won't get into here, he was genuinely, legitimately terrified of going back. Um, and I did pray. So I was writing the motion right before I called ICE, but the, the answer was already there, right? Like it didn't work out. So I figured we'd reach the end and it's time to let it go. But Pastor Josh, man of God that he is, immediately responds to my little text message being like, get as many people as possible to pray. <laughs> Truth, truthfully, my faith level for this to make any difference was low. I'm just confessing. I'm like, legally, the pieces were already in motion. The outcome was like already spelled out. But I felt like this nudge from Josh was also a sort of nudge from God. It was at least the next right thing. So I texted a bunch of people, explaining that I had a client whose case was a lost cause and instructing them to please pray for a miracle if they felt like it. <laughs> the next morning, which is my client's deportation day, I was praying through the Lord's Prayer. And I get to the part about asking for our daily bread and immediately a Bible verse comes to mind. It's from Joel 2, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then um, my first response was not, wow, what a word of encouragement. Praise God, thanks. It wasn't. It was deep skepticism. Immediately the thought that comes to mind is, okay, well, that can't possibly be true. Plenty of people call on the Lord and then, you know, it doesn't work out. And my next response was fear. If I were to wholeheartedly believe that this is true, and call on the name of the Lord all day long and nothing changes, then I'll be really disappointed. Um, more disappointed than if I just accept the outcome now, right? But ultimately, I had little to lose, a lot less than this guy. So I took the word for what it was. And all morning long, under my breath, I'm like calling on the name of the Lord. I'm praying and I just, I just kept praying. We didn't actually give up Monday night, though we probably should have legally. <laughs> we sent an attorney to go with him to Hartford. We bothered the judge's clerk all morning to see if maybe we could pressure the judge to hurry up and reach a decision granting our motion that we couldn't have technically legally been able to file. We tried to speak with ICE attorneys all day long to see if we could convince them to push back the state. I even made like another last minute filing to a completely different office just to see. Nada. In fact, all we did was make them mad. And then there were multiple angry email exchanges before 1 p.m. with me and like the head of ICE. We failed, we completely failed. So he went with his bags to ICE without an attorney and drove to the airport. Which is why I was super shocked when a little after 4 p.m., right after I got a formal denial of that second last minute motion, <laughs> I got a phone call from my client who didn't have a phone. He was confused. He said that an ICE, um, that he was with the ICE officer at the airport, literally waiting to board the plane when the officer got a phone call. And he couldn't understand anything because he doesn't speak English. But as soon as the call was done, all he knows is they turned around, went back to the Hartford office, he got a little ankle monitor, and then he went back home. It's crazy, right? Who knows what's going to happen to him down the line? I have so many questions. 
But all I know is that there was, for me, as a follower of Jesus, a holy mystery and something really beautiful about taking that next step of faith instead of giving up, right? I didn't know the answers. I didn't, I didn't even really have faith for any of the answers. All I did was if I'm being asked to call on the name of the Lord and pray, I will do that. And that was good. Um, in our doubt, we can still obey in the ways that we can. And God can still blow our minds. And I believe even our imperfect and unbelieving obedience can move the kingdom forward. Remember, as soon as Zechariah obeyed the word of the angel, immediately his mouth was open and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. So some invitations or questions for you to consider. One is, what is the next right thing for you? If you're not sure, consider asking God every day this week for your daily bread of obedience. And no matter where you feel about everything else in your life, try doing that one thing and just see what happens. It's a challenge, a gentle challenge to all of you. And then if your next step of obedience is hard because it goes against expectations, the invitation, I think, is to obey anyway, right? We see this in stories of the Bible all the time. Obeying God often looks like disappointing somebody else or at least confusing somebody else. Um, and so, or feeling foolish, right? So some of you here know that there is an ask of obedience for you. You already know what it is. And it comes with a cost of some sort. And maybe you're not sure if you have enough trust in God to go through with it. Does that make sense? Um, but as we'll get into in just a second, you are part of a bigger story that looks like love. And this story is worth giving everything to hang on to. So this is my third and final thought I will offer you today. The bigger story of our faith is an impossibly beautiful one. As soon as Zechariah's voice is opened up again, what he does is he sings. And he sings this song. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. When Zechariah's answered prayer finally comes through, his hoped-for child after so many years of disappointment, he doesn't just sing about his own deliverance. He sings of a bigger story. He has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness all of our days. You see, God has woven us into a big, big story of faith, one that stretches back to our ancestors' deepest longings, the groaning of the Israelites under Egyptian slavery, the tears of a barren woman in society that valued them only for bearing sons, the longing of a chosen people stuck under oppression. 
It's a kind of a rescue that responds to the groanings in our own ancestry, our own family lines, the groaning of enslaved people here in this country, the hungering for home as immigrants in a foreign land, the quest for stability and peace in a hostile world. God is writing a story now that promises fulfillment to these age-old longings, wholeness and healing for these stories, all stories, a kingdom where everything that is wrong is made right. And this promised kingdom outlasts everything that is not good, stretches forever. And I know it's hard and it sometimes even feels impossible to fully believe, but there is a bigger story at play and everything is being healed. Don't we want this? And if there's even a chance that this is true, wouldn't it be worth everything? And I know that some of us here, I just want to recognize, have probably found it really hard to feel connected to this big, beautiful story lately. So I just want to offer a final word of encouragement to anyone who has been in a place of deconstructing. Maybe you're in the middle of questioning really big things about your faith that you didn't used to question, and it feels like everything you once stood firm on is not really reliable anymore. Maybe for you, it's really hard to look past a specific experience of suffering in your personal circumstances. Um, and you're wondering how hope in Jesus could even be a real thing worth relying on anymore. Whether that's your marriage, your health, your family of origin, any number of things. Maybe you're looking at disappointing thing after disappointing thing in the body of Christ. Christian nationalism, extreme homophobia, sexual abuse scandals without accountability, all the things in the headlines that happen. Um, and are wondering if this whole thing, this whole project of faith and faith community is really just a wash. Um, Josh and I were in Jacksonville over Thanksgiving and we met up with my brother's roommate who was just sharing with us how he used to be a follower of Jesus, but he isn't anymore. And he told us the reason he walked away from his faith is because he no longer felt like he had confidence in all the stuff he once believed. And for him, it was like certainty about hell. Like he would preach about it. And then all of a sudden he was like, I don't know, I don't know if I'm sure about that anymore. And then because his context for faith community wasn't a place where you could bring those questions, he just was like, I guess I have no other option, and just walked away from the whole thing. Um, I would encourage us, even as we stare down our biggest, scariest questions, I am telling you, church, we do not have to lose our faith. Because this faith is our story. It's our inheritance, doubts and all. And so even as we, if we want to deconstruct it all, we can still let God hold on tight to us. Because our God is not intimidated by our questions. In fact, I think God welcomes our questions because they set him up well for a God flex to remind us of the beauty of the bigger story that we are in. So I'm going to invite up the worship team to come back. And I'm going to invite up the folks who are going to be giving the prayer call as well. Just to sort of summarize in our closing invitation mode is to bring your doubts to God. Give voice to your doubts. Bring them to God. Do the next right thing as you are able and root yourself again and again into the bigger story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God is good, that God restores us to right relationship through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that God is making all things new. So there are folks uh, throughout the service who have been listening as, as it's going on to hear sort of an invitation or a word from the Lord about how you might specifically want to respond in this moment to get prayer, have people pray over you. Before we do so, I just want to sort of begin with an invitation more broadly. If anyone's in a place of like longing to be 
reconnected to a kind of good promise, right? Like whether that's a, something that you were hoping for but have given up on hoping for maybe, or that bigger, beautiful story of God, if it feels like there's a, there was a tether to something good and that's been cut off, whether by circumstances, disappointment, disillusionment, whatever it may be. Um, and if you're feeling a stirring or an invitation to, to sort of open yourself up to faith from a place of doubt, um, I just invite you, if you feel like you resonate with that word, um, to, to stand. If you're not comfortable standing, you can sort of lift up your hands like this. There's something that matters about like a bodily engagement, I think, sometimes to just like say, I want this. I want something different. I'm not sure if I have the faith for it. I'm not sure um, if I can believe it, but I, I, I want to want it. I want to be reconnected. So if that's you, if, if you relate to that, I just invite you to extend up your hands or to hop up to your feet as an act of obedience and surrender the Spirit's prompting, because I think the Lord wants to move. It's Holy Spirit in our doubts, in our discouragements, in our wondering, in our disappointments. Would you move, living God? Would you breathe? Would you reconnect us to what is true, to what is good, to your gospel, your good news? Lord, we believe there's power when we invite you. And so we invite you to come, Holy Spirit, and have your way. In Jesus' name.